The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Again I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under, about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're a little quiet this morning. I don't know if that's because of the coffee snafu or what. We've all been out in our uh, yards this weekend. Who's in their yard this weekend, right? Yard work, a blessing, and a curse. Um, I was uh, looking at across my neighbor's yards, and some of them, you could tell who, let's just tie this into last week, you could tell who has two hands full of toil, who has one hand full of toil, and who has hands crossed over, just by the amount of dandelions in their yard. Pulled up to one, and I was like, really? Not one dandelion? You're killing us. And the other guy's just like, let him go. (laughs) So let me pray. Let me pray, and uh, we're going to jump into it this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. If you are new here, I'm one of the pastors, and I'm thankful that you're here. Father, we um, are thankful that we get to worship with your people. And in the worship of God is our joy, is our happiness, is our satisfaction that we were made to enjoy you. We were made to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And we do that by being satisfied in you and what you've done for us and where you've placed us and the people that you've given us. And so we worship this morning um, in a state of contentment. We say that by faith. We want to be satisfied in you and where you have us. And we come under the preaching of this word this morning, um, expecting to hear from God, that the God who is outside of time, the eternal God, has spoken to us in his word and spoken to us through his son, and you are going to speak to us this morning. And I pray that we would have open ears, we would have um, hearts that are soft to receive your word, and that we would listen with um, expectancy Uh, We invite you in, Holy Spirit, help us. I pray that you would think through my mind, bring things to mind that need to be brought to mind, silence my 
Silence me when I need, don't need to go there. Um, give me the, the right thoughts. Give me the right words to say. And would you give all of us ears to hear? Um, and would it be clear what's my opinion and, and what's the Word of God? Um, and may we cling to the Word of God this morning. We, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to be finishing the chapter this week, starting in verse 7, going to verse 16. And it's a unique book of the Bible. If you're not used to um, reading poetry and wisdom literature, um, many people have a very hard time reading the Bible because they think of the Bible as one big document that's all the same. Well, it's actually not one big document that's all the same. There's a lots of uh, different books in the Bible. There's different genres in the Bible. And how many, let me just see this here. How many have ever read poetry? How many ever have read poetry for fun? Okay. Now, here's, here's the difference. When the school tells you to read poetry, you read poetry like you're reading a fiction book. Didn't make sense. I, didn't, I don't get it. Right? But when you're reading poetry for fun, you're reading and rereading and going, what does that mean? And you're turning the phrase over in your mind over and over and over. Why? Because poetry is saying something in a way that's meant to kind of get down in us and shape us. It's very, um, it's full of illustrations. It's full of complex ideas. It's meant to be read. It's meant to be difficult, right? It's kind of like the fun about like people who read and enjoy poetry are really glad that other people don't get it. It's kind of like, it's their thing, right? And so when you're reading the Bible and when you, when you get to a section that's full of poetry and that's full of wisdom, it's the same thing. You kind of have to slow down. You have to back up. You have to turn the phrases over in your mind. You have to constantly be saying, what is this guy talking about, right? And he's trying to get past some of our defensive. He's trying to get past of, oh, I got that figured out. You know, when we read a lot of time, yeah, I get it, get it, get it, get it. Just tell me what to do, right? He's trying to get past all of that. He's thinking, we've been saying over and over, like a philosopher. He's asking good questions. And so um, I hope you're reading along with us in, in, um, in this book of Ecclesiastes. And um, this morning we're going to, we're going to get in chapter, or verse 4, cha okay, chapter 4, verse 7 through 16. And he's building off of what he already said last week. If you were with us last week, Solomon left us with, let's just say, some really good advice. When he surveyed the human landscape, he saw that all toil and skill and work comes not from a sense of altruism, but rather a sense of envy, that men and women envy their neighbor and therefore want to get ahead of them and so want to be good, want to be successful, want to be creative, not just for the good of it, but so they can become better than their neighbors or better than the competition. And because of that, humans have a tendency to respond to work in three different ways. First, you can see that and say, oh, it's all pointless. It's all just a bunch of capitalism. And you can fold your hands and you disengage from the work workforce. This Solomon said will ultimately be self-sabotage as your laziness will destroy or your uh, 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 Apathy will destroy your life. Secondly, you can have 
two hands full. So guy, first guy or gal crosses hands. Second guy, two hands full of striving and toil. This is the way of the ambitious workaholic who never has enough, is always grasping for more. More money, more influence, more square footage, more clients, more luxury. Solomon says that life is a wasted life. It's a chasing after the wind. His advice to us and his readers were, it is better. That's his thing. He's going to jump on that same theme today. It's better. It's better. It's better. That's what he's been saying. It's better to have one handful and one handful of quietness. He's saying we should have enough ambition to get a handful, but enough contentment to keep one hand full of quietness. That's his word for enjoyment, Sabbath, worship, rest, generosity. This is a life of margin. The life that has room for people stopping by unannounced. Have you experienced this in your house yet? A knock at the door. And, What's going on? Did you get a text? No. Did you get a text? Who could it be? People knocking at our door. They're here without an invitation. Strange. The life that has room for the unexpected phone call. The request from a missional community member to meet up. It's a life that is half successful or full as the person who has two hands full. I want you to hear that. We, we spent some time on it last week. There's a, there's a sense in our society where I should be able to do what my neighbor does. I should be able to do what this successful person does. But Solomon says, that's foolish. Better is one hand full and one hand open. This is a life that is half as successful or full as the two hand, hands full person. But in the words of Solomon, this life is better. Now, it's pretty interesting. Solomon here is playing with numbers. And if you read through this chapter, you're going to see he's, these number th this number thing keeps coming up over and over. He's kind of teaching through arithmetic. He's saying, watch, one handful is better than two, but two people are better than one, but three is even better. That's, the, that's what he's trying to want, want us to see in chapter four. And this is what I believe Solomon is trying to get across. Human beings, because of the fall, because of our sinful nature, we're so driven by envy and the desire to get ahead, most of us would never even question that thought. Don't you want to get ahead? Well, we should ask, ahead of who? Right? It's a desire to get ahead of our neighbor. We are so driven by this that here's the thing that he's trying to point out in this chapter. We are more focused on getting things than we are friends, than we are people, than we are community, than we are relationships. 
Last week, Solomon told us it's better to have a handful of quietness. Today, he's going to show us one of the things that should go into the hand of quietness is relationships. And relationships need space. They need time. They need quiet. But we are never going to be able to develop deep, lasting relationships if we are always on the go, if we're always striving and grasping. And so let's look at Solomon's first observation today as he makes the transition, talking about one hand full is better than two hands full, and now he gets into his next topic, the topic of relationships and how they go together. Verse seven, again, I saw, here's his observation, vanity, that's the vaporous nature of human life. It's vain, it's, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, you can't grasp it. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Solomon looks down and sees a person who is working incredibly hard, but has no one to share life with. He says this person is, quote, never satisfied with riches, and he never slows down enough or looks deep enough into his heart to ask himself, why am I doing this? Why am I so busy? Why am I so driven? Why don't I take a break? Why don't I join a church? Why don't I slow down and enjoy some of the success that God has given me? I've got houses, I've got cars, I've got money in the bank. Why don't I enjoy that with people I love? Why am I just after more? This is a person who is deeply lonely and might not even realize it. They are running so hard on the treadmill that they don't ever take a self-assessment and say, is this really who I'm supposed to be? Is this really the best way for me to live the one life that I've been given? And if you go back to the book of Genesis, you see that after the fall, well, actually before the fall, mankind were given two things. They were given relationships with God and with each other, and they were given work to do. And the work was not a curse. The work was a blessing. We all have a vocation. We have something that we are meant to do to give back to humanity. That God blesses, whether it's being a lawyer or being a factory worker or being a farmer or being a stay-at-home mom. All of these works are holy. They're meant to be done unto the Lord. And now after the fall, both our work has been cursed and our relationships have been cursed. And here's the thing. People want to ignore one of those realities many times. They want work to fill their relationship bucket. That's a different bucket. You can keep putting money in the bucket. It's not going to fill your relationship bucket. Guess what fills the relationship bucket? Relationships. And guess what goes against your success bucket, your work bucket? Sometimes relationships. They take time. That's time away. 
And the other thing, Solomon looks down at this reality that this guy or gal is just a go-getter, just crushing life, hashtag. And he says, this is an unhappy business. That's what he says, an unhappy business. It's a vain life that's going to be gone in a breath. But here's the thing. Anytime you talk to a person with tendencies towards workaholism, the first thing they say to you, I know from experience because I've been one who said this many times, when you tell them, you need to chill out. You need to have more time for relationships, more margin in your life, more space, is they immediately exaggerate and go the other way. What do you want me to do? Sit around all day and watch Netflix? The slugger goes, well, actually, that sounds like a good idea. The arms crossed guy, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> but that isn't what Solomon says. Solomon says, some of the quietness in our hands the margin in our life is meant for relationships. He says, one hand empty is better than two hands full, but look, two people together are better than one alone. Verse nine, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Well, stop right there. First, Solomon's first kind of practical observation he says, it's better to be with someone else. It's better to have two because uh, you work together and you get more done, right? Well, that's appealing. We all want to accomplish more. We want to get more done, right? It's like, so don't just be a loner. Have somebody with you, all right? Look at the next verse. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. My neighbor had hip surgery and he had two knee surgeries last year and hip surgery this last week or this last month. And his wife came over and got me and he had fallen and he could not get himself up and she couldn't get him, get him up. And I had, and they, we used to have a garage gym. And so they knew these guys, this, this house here, they lift heavy things and put them down. So I'm going to get that house's help. And so she came over and got me and I went over there and, and I had to, and I helped him up, right? You can't, he couldn't get up by himself. Solomon says, when you have somebody there with you, you have a neighbor, you have a friend, you have a colleague that you can help each other when tragedy comes, when you get knocked down in life, all right? Second one, third one. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? What is this? Relationships are meant to provide comfort, literally warmth for each other when life gets cold. Lastly, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. What's he saying? He's saying having relationships brings, uh, it enables us to protect one another from harm, right? Relationships protect us. But then Solomon goes one step further. So that's four practical realities of relationships, right? We can get more done together. We can help each other when tragedy comes. We can provide comfort for each other when, when grief hits and life gets cold. And we can protect each other from future harm. But then he goes one step further and he says, a threefold cord is not easily broken. 
See that? A threefold cord is not quickly broken at the end of verse 12. He's saying human beings are better together. We are meant for community. The scripture teaches us in Genesis, we were made by a relational God who existed in what's called a trinity. It's hard to understand. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. They're all God together. And so we are created by a community and therefore we're created for community. We're relational beings, all right? We are meant for community. Now listen, I have only heard this text preached at weddings. But this passage is not about marriage. It was never intended to be talking about a husband and wife. Solomon isn't saying life is better if you have a person to share it with, so get married. If you think that, you get into all kinds of problems with the number three. Well, all right. Is this polygamy? No. I love it. Preachers, you know, they get inventive. They get real inventive. So who's the third member been at weddings? God. (laughs) Just slap the Holy Spirit on it, right? You, you, your husband, and God, right? It's never meant to be that, right? It's not what he's talking about, right? Solomon is giving us a principle that is necessary for a human life that is flourishing, okay? Lived to the full, abundant life. He's saying less striving after stuff and more time spent on relationships. Less, for those driven in this room, less ambition, more room for deep friendships. For those who tend towards the lazy side of things, more ambition with deep friendship. Now, don't we all, when we look at those things, you know, a friend can come along and help us in those four different areas. Don't we all, wouldn't we all say honestly, yeah, I need that. I want that in my life. See, we, we need it. We were created by God to have it. But the reality is, um, well, one, sin has affected us and infected us. And so we turn from other things. We want to live our life autonomously, away from God and away from people, be the rulers of our own little kingdom. But also, in a practical sense, the reality is, if you want a life with deep friendships, you have to sacrifice for it. Sometimes you have to leave work early to grab a drink with a friend. Sometimes you have to take less vacations to spend more time with those around you or take them on vacation with you. It means shutting off the TV and stepping outside to talk with your neighbors. I can't believe we kind of weird, but we have chickens now, <laughs> and we built a chicken coop, and all of my neighbors, I couldn't believe it, all of my neighbors came out, the older folks came out to look at this contraption that I built, and to be, oh my gosh, it's so cool, it's so neat, yeah, they watch, they love watching construction projects, and all the young parents came out, because all the kids want to see the chickens, 
And this has been like one of the most neighborhood, like communal things we've ever done is built this chicken coop, right? This chicken thing, whatever it is. Now listen, we're deeply starved. Our, our, our country, our society is deeply starved with community. It might even mean going to the coffee shop and taking off the earbuds and just sitting there and talking like a crazy person, <laughs> right? We go, to co- we go to the coffee shop. And we're like, why is this person talking to me? Leave me alone. It's a coffee shop. You're in one room with a lot of people. You could talk. It's a thing. Listen, here's what I'm saying. To be a friend requires more from you than a friend request. It takes your time. It takes your thoughtfulness. It takes space in your calendar. Now, let me tell you, This is one of the greatest problems in our society today, and this is an avenue that if we heed the Bible's advice on, we can live our lives in such a way that we can truly be a bright light in a dark world, a city set on a hill for all to see. This might be the most compelling apologetic for the gospel in our culture today. So if we are going to reach the lost, we need to get better at friendship, community, and hospitality. Did you know that people today are more lonely than ever? Sociologists around the world are trying to raise a flag of awareness and warn us that something is terribly wrong. In January of this year, Britain appointed its first Minister for Loneliness who is charged with tackling what Prime Minister Theresa May called, quote, the sad reality of modern life. Recent statistics have come out, came out and said most Americans are lonely. They feel a constant sense of loneliness. And this is what's surprising. Maybe, you know, it's not really, it's counterintuitive. We would think it's probably the older generation, but it's not. It's the youngest generation who are the most lonely. 46% of 18 to 20-year-olds say they usually or always feel alone. And listen, alone and disconnected. Vivek Murthy, the former United States Surgeon General, has written that loneliness and social isolation are, quote, associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that by, caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than, the, than that associated with obesity. I read, and I, I had written this sermon, and I don't know if it's the, you know, the uh, omniscient Google gods or what, but I was writing this sermon and I got three different articles in my newsfeed, right? They know your thoughts, you know that, right? I, I don't know how. Actually, I kind of know how. I was reading three different articles from major publications this week on what many are calling the loneliness epidemic in our society. And the first thing I want to ask is what's causing this? What's causing us to be, the younger generation specifically, to be one of the most lonely generations and maybe the most lonely generation that's ever been recorded? 
I think it's two things. I think there's at least two reasons. One, this is a consequence of what we in the Western world have called, and in America specifically have called, rugged individualism. That we are first and foremost individuals who chart our way and we determine our own existence and we determine our own life and we determine our own identities and we determine our own careers, we determine our own neighborhoods, that it's all on us. This is a quote from the New York Times this week. Neoliberal social policies, and neoliberal doesn't mean the liberals and the conservatives. We're all, all both parties are neoliberal. And the, I'm not going to get into that. Have turned workers into precarious free agents. And when jobs disappear, things fall apart fast. Labor unions, civic associations, neighborhood organizations, religious groups, and other traditional sources of social solidarity, community, are in steady decline. Increasingly, we all feel that we're on our own. Now, Robert Putnam wrote a book 30 years ago called Bowling Alone, and he documents this kind of uh, move in, in the Western society. How they're used, all of these, you see these old buildings that kind of look like churches, but they're like the Scottish Rite Cathedral, and they're all these different, these just used to be civic organizations where people got together in community. All of those have almost disappeared off of our cultural landscape. Every, it's not just church, I mean, we hear a lot, churches are in decline. No, no, no. Every community organization is in decline. Why? Because we are rugged individualists, and that's making us more and more lonely. The second thing that's caused this sense of loneliness, the rise of communications technology like smartphones, social media, and the internet. Now, I highlighted that the younger generation is feeling more disconnected than any other generation before it, which is surprising because they're the highest users of social media and Facebook, which is promising connection, right? It's promising you can have a thousand friends. But what Facebook is revealing and social media is revealing that these are not friends in the traditional sense. These are connection, not community. And when they, when they put in social media use, social media use has no effect on the person's loneliness or not. Positive or negative. That's what some of the studies are showing right now. Now, they can have negative effects if it's co constantly driven by envy, but your social media can also have positive effects if you're using it to set up face-to-face -face relationships. Hey, let's meet for coffee. Hey, I see you're there. I'm going there too. Let's go. Listen to this. Uh, Tony Fidel, he helped design the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad. And his work is not resting easily with him. This is what he was quoted uh, by Anderson Cooper on uh, Monday's Mindfulness in America Summit. This is what he says. I worry what my grandkids are going to think. Will it be, he's the guy who destroyed society. That, that's what one of the creators of the iPod, all these devices, that's what he thinks. That's what he's worrying about right now. It's now common knowledge that Steve Jobs did not allow his kids to use the iPad or the iPhone. Didn't allow them to have them. See, 
What scientists are discovering is that we're made for community. We're made for connection. Here's one simple illustration. It's bad. It's going to be a little crude, but when a child looks at a person and says, you're fat, they see that person's face scrunch up, tears well up, cry. They run around. Mom sees it, says, what happened? I called him fat. What? You did what? It's a very mean thing to say. This is how empathy is developed. You watch a person's face change. You realize what happened. Parents provide leadership and guidance. Oh, we change it. When you send a text, you're fat. No one sees anything. You don't see that person's face change. You don't see how that hurt them. Mom doesn't know about it. It's changing us foundationally as a society and as people. Now, I, so this is moms, dads, beware the pass back. Do you, do you know the pass back? You're driving. They're screaming. I want your phone. I need a, anything to stop the screaming, right? How often do your kids beg for it? How often do they, right away, first thing in the morning, as soon as you get in the car, it's damaging us in ways we don't realize. Now, listen, I'm not saying we should all throw away our phones. We did not throw away the autom automobile after we, did, we found out that it could very easily kill people, right? When the automobile was created 100 years ago, right, there were no speed limits, there were no seat belts. This thing just gets us to point A to point B really fast, right? Then you go off into the ditch and people just go flying, right? So what did we do? Well, we added seat belts. We made safer roads. We set up speed limits and we made the vehicle safer. But I want you to think about this. It was, it was 100 years ago when Henry Ford made the, the Model A, right? And we're just now getting airbags, right? We got all kind of bags now coming out of seat belts and coming all over the place, right? It's going to feel like I'm in a bouncy house when I get out, right? It's taken 100 years for that to happen. So listen, we should think about that. It's taken that long for us to make our vehicles safe. We should be aware that the unstructured, unhindered, unthoughtful use of our phones, tablets, and social media are damaging us as humans. And if we don't think through them and put up some guardrails in our life, we are at risk of deeply damaging our kids and our own ability at living in community and developing deep and lasting friendships. And what's deeply fascinating to me is when you go to the Gospels and you study the life of Jesus, you see him do two things that are vital for a life that can flourish in this world that's been tarnished by sin. A life that is relationally broken and a life that we try to define ourselves externally through our work. First, Jesus practiced solitude. It's interesting that solitude is one way to deal with loneliness. Do you know the difference between solitude and loneliness? Loneliness is the pain of being alone. Solitude is the glory of being alone. 
In solitude, I come to know God and myself in a deeper way. I get alone in his word. I read it and I study it and I pray it and I come to see myself and the God who created me in clearer ways. See, in solitude, I become more comfortable in who I am and who he is. This allows me to live out of my true self, my identity in Christ. And what does that mean? That means I can be tough when I need to be tough. I can be tender when I need to be tender. I can confess my sins when I need to confess my sins. I can tell the truth when I need to tell the truth. I can take a break and rest when I need to take a break and rest. I am not driven. I am not craven. I am not lazy. I am not discontent. See, when a person spends time in solitude, they develop a stable sense of self, a sense of self that has roots, that goes down, that's not gonna be blown around by whatever environment I'm in. And this this time in solitude where I get to know God and myself in a deeper way, it prepares me to go out into the world and be me, the me who knows God. It prepares me to go out and bring what I learned in solitude into the light in community. This is, I know who I am. I'm going to go out and be who I am and bless the world. Instead of being blown around like a kite on the wind in whatever group of people you're in, they're determining your beliefs and they're determining your thoughts and they're determining who you are. Now, all of us need solitude. We're built for it. And listen, you might think solitude is like you and your phone. But that's not solitude. Solitude happens when you have nothing to do and you put the phone away, the phone that screams that you're transcendent, the phone that screams you can be everywhere at all times, the phone that screams you can have all these different friends, the phone that screams your importance, or also the phone that screams your unimportance. Your phone that screams, nobody cares what you're doing. The phone that screams, your life isn't as good as that guy that gets to go on vacation all the time or that gal that has that new car or whatever it is. You put this thing away and you spend time alone with God and with yourself. Our children desperately need solitude. Our kids need to know that boredom is beautiful. My son says, I'm bored. I'm like, yes. What do you mean, yes? Something awesome is about to happen. See, boredom is the moment before all creativity. All good. I remember a year or so ago, wouldn't give him the iPad, wouldn't, took away the video games, wouldn't do it. We do it all the time. Go outside, go play. There's nothing to do. Give me your wrath. Let me hear it. Oh, you wise one. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Okay, now go outside and play, right? Goes outside. An hour later, I look out and I see him and some neighbor boys and they have things stuffed under their shirts and they're just running at each other like this. (laughs) And I said, and one of them had balls in their chest and one of them had a big belt. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're playing bumper women. (laughs) Said, that is an amazing game birthed out of boredom, right? Now listen, 
that doesn't come solitude scrolling on your phone. You see what everybody else is doing. You have a sense of, I'm not really that good. I'm not really that cool. I look what everybody else is going on. That doesn't come from being on your phone. That comes from a moment of boredom that leads you to, and it, what? What does it lead me to a lot of times? The garage. I need to clean this thing. I need to bring order out of chaos in this place, right? I'm bored. I'm going to be productive, right? Or I'm bored. I'm going to write something. Or I'm bored. I'm going to read something. Or I'm bored. I'm going to create something. Boredom is necessary. Now, so first, Jesus practiced solitude. And solitude works against loneliness, okay? Part of loneliness is an inability to be alone with myself an anxiety that's produced by not being able to be alone with myself and God, okay? Solitude is the answer for that, a relationship with God in solitude. Secondly, Jesus also lived life in deep community. He lived in concentric circles of friendship. He had the 70 disciples that he sent out to preach the gospel in Luke 10. He had the 12 apostles right, that he lived life with in community and on mission for probably about three years. He had the three, Peter, James, and John, that he took off to pray and spend more deeper community with. And then he even had one, John, who's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus was not a rugged individualist like we are. Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from his place of birth. He lived local. People knew him his whole life. They knew his family. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. And when Jesus chose the apostles, he lived with them during his ministry. And so, we are meant to live in community. Sacred City, we have what we call missional communities for that very purpose. We want to develop deep friendships with one another. We want to practice solitude so we know God and know ourselves. And we want to invest in meaningful community because this is what we were made for. Rosaria Butterfield, um, she's got a new book out. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's at our um, bookstore. You can check it out. Rosaria Butterfield, if you don't know, she was a um, university professor at Syracuse. She was um, a lesbian in a, a committed homosexual relationship. She wrote the policy for Syracuse University on inclusion, on LGBTQ uh, uh, diversity. And she was staunchly opposed to religion and Christianity. And she was going to write a book about the Christian right, how terrible for society they are. And she said, she was taught that you get to the primary sources. You don't just write, um, you know, um, a straw man argument to knock down. You actually understand what what you're writing against. And so next door to her, a Christian couple, an older pastor and his wife moved in. And so she said, I'm going to go hang out with, they invited her over for dinner. She's like, absolutely, I'm going over here for research for my book. I'm gonna go see what these bigots are talking about. And she was invited in to this community and after years, it radically 
changed her life. She was converted to Jesus Christ. She stepped out of her homosexual lifestyle. She eventually, long story short, we're 20 years down the road now. She got married. She's a pastor's wife. She wrote this book. God's done amazing things through her story. And in this book, and I, we've got two of her books out there. The first book that tells about her story is called The Unlikely Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert or something like that. And her, her new book is uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And her main thesis is this. Gospel-centered hospitality. Christians opening up their homes to the stranger, the outsider, is the hope for the world. Hospitality is love towards the stranger. It's a missional love that welcomes others into our family and treats them like brothers and sisters. See, so many of us, there was no way she was going to be converted coming to a church gathering, just coming to a church gathering. She needed to see what it looks like. What do real Christians look like in their home? They sing together, they worship together, they eat together, they welcome others, they bless. Whoa, what does this look like? See, her homosexual community was radically affirming, radically welcoming, radically hospitable. She, she needed to see that the Christian, the gospel makes an even more radical community. So many people grow up with broken homes, dysfunctional families, and they don't know how to be in healthy relationships. And they aren't going to learn relationships from a book, many times not even from a sermon. They need to be welcomed into a family that is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet Christians who live spirit-empowered, hospitable lives, who treat their homes like the number one mission field. Like God gave you your home to reach your neighbors. He didn't get, give you your home to be a safe haven from the evil culture that's out there. He didn't give you your money just to go on better vacations and just have bigger things. He gave you your money so you could spend it on some of your neighbors so you can have better meals and backyard barbecues and invite people into community. I encourage you to get the book, read through it. It's challenging. If you're committed to a comfortable American Christianity, you'll throw the book across the room. And maybe it'll tempt you to pick it back up because it's what we need. We can wring our hands and wonder why they're not coming to us or we can take the gospel to them in our homes. Lastly, Solomon goes to, on to illustrate his point. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, there's a lot of blessings to being old in the Bible. It talks about wisdom comes with age many times, but that's not necessarily. Sometimes the older you get, the bigger know-it-all you become. And you don't need to listen to anyone else. And Solomon says, it's better for a poor young guy who listens to advice than an old guy or old gal who thinks they've got it all figured out. Look at this young guy, verse 14. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, 
said, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. This guy was influential. He knew how to win friends and influence people. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Now, we could think this guy should probably remind us of Joseph in Genesis, who rose from the prison to rule Egypt alongside Pharaoh. And just like Joseph, this king was soon forgotten. Those who come after him don't even remember him. In Exodus, if you remember when we went through Exodus, Exodus chapter 1 said this, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Scholar Derek Kidner, when he's looking at this king, he says this of him. We look at a man who has reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. It's lonely at the top. This young man had the truly American story. He went from the poorhouse to the palace. He went from the prison to the throne. And everyone knew him and everyone exalted him and everyone screamed his name. But given a couple generations, he too will be forgotten. Solomon says, this too is vanity, a chasing after the wind. When I was growing up, Michael Jordan was the best basketball player to ever play the game. His face was everywhere. I was a wrestler and I had Michael Jordan in my bedroom, okay? His face was everywhere. It was on cereal boxes, posters, shoes and clothing, commercials, talk shows. And now many, 20 years later, are saying he has been dethroned by King James, LeBron James. But give them both a couple more generations and people will be saying, King who? MJ who? No one keeps their popularity forever. Scripture tells us the only things that are eternal are the word of God and the relationships bound together by the word of God and by the blood of Jesus Christ. You look at your life, if you assess your life, how much of your life are you building on the word of God and building on relationships that are shaped by the word of God? Is that how you're spending the majority of your time? How much effort are you putting in to be a good friend? To be a good member of your missional community family? How much effort are you putting in to welcoming other people into your life and the life of your MC family. How many people do you have for dinner? How many people do you have in your yard? How many people do you have in your house, in your dorm room, in your apartment? If God gave this as a missional tool for you, are you bringing people into it? Now, if you aren't, I can tell you, it's because you either don't understand the gospel or you've forgotten it altogether. Think about this. One of the most shocking 
truths of the gospel isn't just that Jesus suffered and died to repair our relationship with God and others. Listen, but that he suffered and died alone. He suffered and died alone on the cross to do it. Jesus who had always existed eternally in the community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He had never known loneliness. He had never known rejection. He had never known betrayal. Jesus was abandoned by the Father and the Spirit. And Jesus chose it. Jesus willed it. Jesus wanted it. Jesus was a co-conspirator with God. He wasn't abandoned like, like a terrible father would abandon his child. He was willfully doing it for us. Jesus, who had never been alone, never experienced loneliness before, alienation, experienced it on the cross. As the song, the hymn says, and the, on the cross, the father turned his face away. At this moment, Jesus cried out, my God. First time he ever called God, God and not Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, Jesus was abandoned by God. He was abandoned by his closest friends. All of his followers scattered like sheep. Paul says it was here in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he says this, for, why did this happen? For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That means Jesus experienced the most tragic sense of loneliness that anyone has ever experienced. And he did it so you would never have to experience it. Because that's what hell is. Hell is loneliness multiplied by eternity. You want your own way? Have it. And people just trying to get farther and farther away from each other. That's the illustration that C.S. Lewis writes about. Hell is a sense of loneliness multiplied times eternity. Jesus experienced that for you, for us. So we don't have to. Hear me, Jesus died alone so that you could be brought into the family. Hanging naked outside the city gates. He's hanging there for us so that we could be brought into the family of God. Now listen, the church, what we're doing this morning as a people, we are here to welcome people in because Jesus died alone in our place. Our missional community, it's meant to welcome people in because Jesus died alone and his death welcomed us in. We will eat at the table of the Lord's Supper today with a diverse people that we call family because Jesus died alone to make this a reality. And this meal will point into the future. Let me quote. Scholar J Jamie Smith, he says this, the culmination of history 
as Christians confess it, is an unending feast with a seat for everyone. Surely in the meantime, the body of Christ has something to say, something to show, something to do for those who feel excluded, ostracized, and forgotten. This meal is a meal for the outsiders who've been brought in. It's a meal for those who look to the death of Christ alone for us to bring us together as a new community, to live as a new community in this fallen world, to change our neighborhoods where we live. God wants to do that through us. And it might just mean mowing somebody's grass, having a drink with somebody, having them over for dinner. You you never know what, what God's going to use. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, deeply convince us of this. We are aware that we are relational. We're aware that we crave community. But many times our desire for things, if we can confess it, if we can be honest, our desire for things trumps our desire for true community. That there is a lot of reason to confess. We confess our sinfulness. We can confess our greed. We can confess our desire to be better and have more authority, more power, to be the king who goes from the poorhouse to the palace. We look at this guy and we say, that's the American story. That's what we want. And yet, Jesus, your story is the exact opposite the king who leaves the throne and becomes a poor man, the one who leaves the family and leaves community to become lonely so that we could have a family. I pray that that thought, that reality would bring us to worship you. We come to the table this morning that Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is broken for you. This is my body. Eat it in remembrance of me and the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood that's shed for you. This is what it takes to bring you into the family. It's what it takes to bring you into community. It's what it takes to bring you even into God. Your sins have to be covered. Your sins have to be cleansed. Your heart has to be changed. And that doesn't happen by you trying harder. That happens by me dying for your sins. And so we eat and we drink and worship this morning. You are the God who brings orphans into the family. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.